Frederick Nietzsche's Madman. That's master metaphor number eight coming up. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and broke it and went out. I have come too early, he said to them. My time has not yet come. This is from uh, Nietzsche's uh, aphorism, his little story on the madman. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, uh, joined with Dr. Gregory Schulz, and we are talking about the master, 10 master metaphors of Western philosophy, and today is master metaphor number nine. Uh, this madman uh, told to us, brought to us by Nietzsche. Dr. Schulz, welcome back to the conversation. Guten Nachmittag, Pastor. All in German today, because we're talking about Frederick Nietzsche. Um, start with Nietzsche, the man. Tell us about this guy. Nietzsche, the human being, I should say. Well, thanks, Brian. Um, so I'm going to suggest that we do look at him first as the human being, as you're giving me a chance to do. That's not, um, for today, our main target. We mostly want to talk about his work as an author. Uh, but I think it's important um, not to psychoanalyze the work of philosophers. First of all, I'm not trained in that. And, and secondly, I don't think that's a great way to handle their texts. But um, I, I do have a special message about some uh, sympathy or compassion that we can show for Nietzsche the person before we're obliged to deal with uh, the good and the bad and the ugly in his philosophy. So um, Walter Kaufman, uh, a 20th century philosopher and translator, um, almost single-handedly introduced Nietzsche and his philosophy to the English-speaking world. Uh, he offers a little bit of a uh, biographical description of Nietzsche, which was originally written by Stefan Zweig. And, and here it is, two short paragraphs. Carefully, the myopic man sits down to a table. Carefully, the man with the sensitive stomach considers every item on the menu. For every mistake in his diet upsets his sensitive digestion, and every transgression in his nourishment wreaks havoc with his quivering nerves for days. Nothing that stimulates, refreshes, or rests him. Only the short, meager meal, a little urbane, unprofound conversation in a soft voice with an occasional neighbor, as a man speaks who for years has been unused to talking and is afraid of being asked too much. And then back up in Nietzsche's tiny, unheated apartments, Fate goes on with this. There is a heavy and graceless trunk, his only possession, with the two shirts and the other worn suit. Otherwise, only books and manuscripts, and on a tray, innumerable bottles and jars and potions, against the migraines, against the stomach cramps, against spasmodic vomiting, against the slothful intestines, and above all, the dreadful sedatives against his insomnia, chloral hydrate and veronal. His fingers freezing, his double glasses pressed close to the paper, his hurried hand writes for hours, words the dim eyes can hardly decipher. For hours he sits like this until his eyes burn. So um, in this volume, the portable Nietzsche, Kaufman says, um, in connection with another of Nietzsche's writings, thus spoke Zarathustra, that he thinks what Nietzsche most needed was an editor with a blue pencil. Um, I 
actually teach my undergrads that what Nietzsche needed most was a devoted friend. I think he needed a faithful, articulate Lutheran friend who would stick with him over the long haul. And instead of um, shallow, unprofound conversation, provide him with a long-term profound conversation about God in Christ and life in the life that he gives us to the full. That's what I tell my students. Um, so we're looking at a philosopher that may sound a little odd to Christian ears for us to be making a point about, but I think, first of all, there's that. Um, we need to watch out for 21st century Nietzsche's who need long-term friendship and the truth of the Bible. And um, I also think that uh, my students and perhaps all of us uh, need some opportunity to begin building an immunity toward Nietzsche's philosophy. So in small doses and perhaps with some uh, Lutheran Christian guidance is the way to do that. Uh, Nietzsche also had a Lutheran pastor for a father. Who, who else? Did Kant have a Lutheran pastor for a father? Well, that's well, right. This is getting to look a little suspicious here. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> yeah. So um, Immanuel Kant grew up as a Lutheran pietist. We talked about his categorical imperative recently. And then uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's dad was a Lutheran pastor. Now, um, Nietzsche's dad died uh, reportedly a, a fairly terrible death, uh, more or less in front of Nietzsche when Nietzsche was about five or six years old, I think. And um, that's part of what, what catches my compassion on this. I was you know, kind of wondering, as both of us might, what would have happened to my kids if at about that age, uh, their pastor, me, the the guy who, you know, together with my wife, probably talks the most about God being a loving God to them, just wasted away in front of their eyes. Um, how how would they handle that? And then it's also a matter of record that Nietzsche was raised by some relatives who were, um, shall we say, less than helpful after that. Mm-hmm. Now, um that's Nietzsche the man. What about Nietzsche the author? We want to, and I think you made this point even just talking about him as a man, that when we come to these philosophers, especially as their conversation enters into public, that we, um, you know, we're treating them according to the words that they write. What, um, how can you introduce us to that, to his writing and his thinking? Well, the thing with Nietzsche that catches our compassion and I think also um, demands a response is that Nietzsche, by virtue of that Lutheran upbringing, for instance, is probably the upper-tier philosopher who was most familiar with the Bible in the last 200, maybe the last three or 400 years, in other words, in modernity. So um, what we find is that he's doing some things with Scripture overtly and covertly in some of his writing uh, that that does need to be addressed. Uh, and as I said before that I you know, I really wish I were around to have addressed with Nietzsche himself before it was too late. So um, what we have is um, a writing by him that we're going to be looking at today. But before I get there, maybe I can mention uh, for a minute or two that title I launched out before, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. So in that writing of Nietzsche, which is not a writing I recommend for a first start, I I think it's a writing that's saturated with biblical allusions, but it's um, kind of a sustained blasphemy against God. For instance, even even something such as the Lord's Supper is subjected to a kind of inversion. Now, on the on the one hand, um, if you were talking with the person who was writing that way, you'd like to try to reach him and and uh, explain 
what's really going on in scripture or at least recommend that he consider repenting. Um, once you launch this sort of stuff out, um, blaspheming the Lord's words, um, that really does need to be addressed because philosophy is supposed to be um, the pursuit of wisdom and truth. And um, to undercut the message of Christ, especially to do that after the fullness of time, you know, these last two millennia, um, that is just something that um, always bears problems in its train. And we really should seek to heal people and uh, look after them after they've come in contact with this kind of corrosive stuff. This was slightly off topic, but I remember you telling me a story a while back about um, being at a, a, a conference of philosophers and um, they were talking about what, what what was it? You were looking at a piece. Um, it wasn't Bonhoeffer. Maybe it was someone else who who was talking about the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac. And um, and you were asking the people who were writing papers about this philosopher's take on Abraham and Isaac, if they'd actually engaged with the text from the Bible about Abraham and Isaac, and they, uh, you know, they they had no familiarity with it. Um, I don't know if you remember telling me that, but uh, well, sure, I do. So that was um, from a conference in which uh, one of the major papers was on Kierkegaard and on his fear and trembling. And uh, some of our listeners know that Kierkegaard is a, <laughs> he's another Lutheran philosopher, by the way, but um, is a, a bona fide, serious Bible-thinking philosopher. And he, in his book Fear and Trembling, um, for which when I, when I teach that I can't escape the um, recognition that he must have been working from Luther's commentary on Genesis for some of his insights. Uh, Kierkegaard talks about ethics in terms of that Genesis 2.22 Genesis 22 story you mentioned about Abraham being called on to sacrifice Isaac. And yeah, so it's not this way everywhere, but it it certainly seems to be a part of mainstream professional philosophy that um, we are pretty attentive to philosophy texts and, in um, my crabby view, pretty attentive to bizarre texts from non-Christian religions from time to time. But uh, we're not, by and large, reading the biblical text at all, which is, well, strange. I was wondering if you found that same sort of thing when you're engaging with uh, people talking about Nietzsche, if they have this kind of lack of engagement with the biblical texts that he's either you know, referring to or, or, or refuting or alluding to or, or whatnot? I do. And uh, sometimes it, it concerns folks when you start mentioning things about what the Bible actually says, and especially with that um, blasphemous take that Nietzsche exhibits in Zarathustra, uh, when you mention that, well, no, I'm not particularly concerned about respect for my religion. I'm concerned about the truth that this Jesus Christ, about whom <laughs> in another spot, Nietzsche writes a, a, a writing called Eke Homo, Behold the Man, and uh, he refers that to himself. Oh. So I, you know, I point out that this is just not safe. It's not good to be dealing with the incarnate God uh, in these kinds of terms, to put it mildly. That, that's the famous word spoken by Pilate when he brings out Jesus uh, crowned with the uh, uh, with the with the thorns and in a in a robe and says, "Behold the man," hoping for some sympathy and receives none. Um, you you said the third thing for introduction uh, is you call uh, Frederick Nietzsche the patron saint of postmodernism, at least as we experience it here. So um, maybe uh, just a brief introduction to postmodernism, and then we can look at the the madman. 
Well, sure. Um, if you appreciate that, it's pretty hard to offer a brief introduction. So the, um, the, the basic thought that I'd offer, Brian, is that postmodernism, when we're talking philosophy or I would think talking theology or mindset, is not the same sort of thing that we might be talking about in an art museum or in uh, an art history class. So it's not what comes after modernism. Uh, postmodernism, as we've come to call it um, in philosophy, is actually nothing new. It's a, a type of relativism, a wholesale relativism, and it combines saying there's no such thing as truth with the added push, nor should anybody be trying to maintain that there's such a thing as capital T truth. So I offered uh, a thesis, I think, when we were talking in our first master metaphor about Plato's cave, that before Socrates um, was the philosopher Protagoras. And Protagoras is famous for a statement most of us know, man is the measure of all things. So his full statement is, man is the measure of all things, of things that are that they are, things that are not that they are not. And um, I could certainly explain in the longer version that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle each show in their philosophy that they are dead set against that relativism. So in other words, they're looking for universal, a universal standard and norm when it comes to justice and ethics and, and, and so forth. Now, in our day and age, uh, people such as uh, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, Jean-Francois Léotard, and um, also um, some other figures have uh, pushed this so much so that it kind of feels like that's getting to be the norm. You know, these upper-tier folks worked at saying there's no such thing as capital T truth, only small t truths, there's no grand meta narrative. that I think actually uh, a lot of our university kids have been kind of infected with that, as have a lot of university professors. So I get a chance to bring out a quote I've offered for our listeners before. This is from Roger Scruton. If a philosopher tells you there's no such thing as truth or all truth is relative, He's telling you not to listen to him, so don't. <laughs> um, and that's that's what uh, that's what we're up to here. So I've offered the thought that Nietzsche. This is no big big secret. I think Nietzsche is really uh, kind of the uh, patron saint of post mod thinkers that we could name from our own generation or so. I that, now your definition of postmodernism. I, I maybe just want to highlight this because we we often hear it defined as the, the, the a kind of a, a pure relativism that there is no truth. But you added this sentence: neither should anyone claim that there is a truth. So that that's important because that that explains why the kind of the push for tolerance is so intolerant. Um, well, I think that's well put. Right. So um, that's the that's the new wrinkle. I suppose we could say that modernity is um, thinking about and working at a kind of relativism, but postmodern thought embraces that and then, as you said, intolerantly insists that nobody but nobody uh, better try this claim that there is such a thing as capital T truth. And I think we should be very direct about this. Um, that's opposed to the way Western culture became Western culture. And that's also uh, self-falsifying. If it really is the case, there's no such thing as one truth. The fact that there is not one truth which is being claimed is a universal truth, you know. So 
that doesn't really track. But at the heart of this all, um, I think, has to be the denial of the God of the Bible and the denial of the very God, a very God who said, I am the truth. Don't miss the article. That is so it's not only destructive of it's it's not a destructive of reason that that's the claim that there is no truth it's it's destructive of reality it's destructive of it's destructive of of philosophy if philosophy is the quest for truth then there's no truth there's you know there's no philosophy it's the destruction of theology but in the end it's the destruction of um it's the destruction of hope it's the destruction of salvation and of the human being I want to um, – now, we, we didn't talk about this, but I, I want to maybe see if we can go at this uh, Nietzsche's madman this way. It's it's short. It's less than a page, and it's four paragraphs. Um, I, I wonder if maybe I could read the first paragraph and then um, we could comment on it. I think it's short enough that we could actually hear the whole thing uh, sure. and walk through it that way. So, so Nietzsche starts uh, this way, and this is in, again, um, his little book called The Gay Science, uh, which is a collection of um, – uh, kind of poems and stories, um, which and this stands out in the middle. This one stands out. I think it was made famous because it was quoted in Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> Nietzsche starts this way: uh, Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in a bright in the bright morning hours, ran into the marketplace and cried incessantly, "I seek God! I seek God!" As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Why? Did he get lost? said one. Did he lose his way like a child? said another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or immigrated? Thus they yelled and they laughed. The madman jumped into the midst and pierced them with his glances. So that's the setup of this picture, this metaphor, uh, and this image. Uh, what you, what can you pull out from that? Well, it's too bad that we're not doing this as video because we could have you yell on, yell and uh, stare at us from your desk in your study, <laughs> and pierce us with your glances. The, it, it's really the dramatic. Can imagine it now. I'm, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really dramatic writing. Uh, certainly. It's also something that sounds vaguely familiar, right? So you've got this dramatic look of the fellow with a multi-hundred candle um, flashlight in the bright morning running through, think about your your favorite um, mall near you, right? Yelling that he's looking for God. And then we hear these other people who don't happen to believe in God mocking him. So um, this is, I think, rather clearly... Uh, reference to the story of Elijah mocking the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. Except in this case, it's turned around so that the people who don't believe in the true God are mocking the guy who is looking for the God of the Bible. And uh, this is not accidental. We um, adverted to Nietzsche's biblical literacy. He's also a philologist, what we would think of as a linguistic expert, uh, so he knows that biblical text, I think, as well as he knows all those Greek texts that he writes so interestingly about. This uh, the picture of a man with, a, like you said, with a flashlight on in the middle of the day, uh, pointing to his madness, um, is uh, well, it's stunning. Uh, but then, but then it goes on. Uh, the madman uh, continues. Whither is God? He cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him. You and I. All of us are his murderers. But how have we done this? 
How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now, away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night and more night coming on all the while? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? Gods, too, decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? What was holiest and most powerful of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of the deed too great for us? Must we not become gods simply to seem worthy of it? Well, now, in this paragraph, uh, the centerpiece is the phrase, God is dead, and I'd like to come back to that in a second. Along the way, we should appreciate again that Nietzsche is showing a, a rather amazing literacy of Western texts. So I think with the reference to the blood, at least part of it, uh, you've got to think a little bit about Shakespeare's Macbeth. And when we think about um, all of the meaning being gone out of the world because God is is not here somehow anymore, um, that sounds like John Donne and others talking about how in modernity everything's been flung to its atomies. Um, and also, I'm quite sure that the reference to night in this paragraph uh, gave the title to Elie Wiesel's book um, on his account of having survived uh, the death camps for, under the Nazis. Hmm. So the the centerpiece, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. I remember going through seminary and early into my ministry thinking of Nietzsche as a uh, an atheist and uh, just a very outspoken atheist. I think, uh, to my shame, I probably even preached a sermon or two in which I said, uh, so Nietzsche said God is dead, and now God says Nietzsche is dead, as if as if that were funny or witty of me. But actually, what Nietzsche is pointing out is a cultural diagnosis. You'll notice that he doesn't say God never existed or the stuff of the Bible is all superstition. He says we have killed God. Uh, it's interesting to me that he clearly has a very robust notion of God going on in here. So, you know, he's not talking about whatever God people in whatever religion may worship. He's talking about the God of the Bible. It really is the case up until the 20th century that um, almost without exception, when Western philosophers talk about God, they're talking about the God of the Bible straight up, or um, I'm adverting to Roger Scruton again, uh, they're at least using a very wafer-thin notion of the God of the Old Testament. And that's what Nietzsche is doing here. This is the God of the Bible who has been excised from Western culture. So 
we should consider, I think, that um, Western culture is not best defined for a study like this the way anthropology, contemporary anthropology would do it, you know, um, sort of describing what certain people in a certain place think is right or what certain people in a certain place do for their funerary practices or their religions or whatever. But consider that a culture, to be a culture is in the first place uh, people who have shared moral judgments that are handed down across generations. Now, Western culture then could be defined, and I'm drawing on Roger Scruton a third time here, Western culture could be defined then, um, in my own paraphrase, as shared forms of judgment regarding the good, the beautiful, and the true, or moral judgment, done according to Greek forms of thinking, but with Judeo-Christian content, that is, with biblical content. So, as far as we've come in his metaphor, Nietzsche is, I think we have to say, a master physician in terms of diagnosis. Uh, This really is what was happening in Europe during his day. And it took until the 20th century before most people saw it. Uh, But it seems that he was just spot on with his analysis that the West um, was hell-bent on getting the God of the Bible out of our public discourse, out of our education, out of our literacy, just as much as possible uh, by the concluding years of the 19th century. He says, what was holy? I mean, it's incredible how these questions, I mean, most of this paragraph is just one question after another, and each of them contains almost their own metaphor themselves. Um, uh, I'm looking at this one, this little statement where he says, what was holiest and most powerful of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. And so uh, so God is described as holy and most powerful. Um, so, so again, speaking of the God of the Bible, but what, what is that for Nietzsche when, he, when he's calling God holy and most powerful? And, and how does he see the death of the, both the holiness of God, I suppose, and the powerfulness of God? Well, he sees it in um, biblical or quasi-biblical terms, don't you think? Those questions that you were just um, admiring and pointing out are questions that sound like paraphrases of God speaking to Job out of the storm, right? Mm -hmm. As if somebody else were asking God's questions um, for and about him. So the, um, the text tells us that Nietzsche asked, what was holiest and most powerful, and then he refers to what that the world has yet owned. Um, the more I work with this, the more I'm convinced that he is he is thinking something better could happen as the result of getting the God of the Bible out of the way. So uh, there are, are more than incidental threads of this in other areas of his writing. In fact, uh, the next big topic we're going to talk about, what's his answer to this problem of the death of God, is going to show that up. So I'm going to say here that Nietzsche um, has uh, a Yahtzee view of Western culture. So he's analyzing that the God and diagnosing that the God of the Bible is out, that there is work to be done, which few other people have realized. Think about the shallowness of those wiseacres at the beginning mocking him for looking for God. They haven't considered the consequence of Western atheism yet. They don't realize that there's a price to be paid. 
But Nietzsche is actually thinking based on those smaller um, verb tenses and particles that things can get better uh, if people listen to his recommendations later on. He talked about even in the questions at the beginning of the paragraph, the, he, he gives these images. How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon so so that, you know, God holds the sea in his hands, but here we're big enough to drink the whole thing, or the sponge to wipe away the horizon as if the, the entire uh, world were a painting and we were the author able to delete it. Or, or then this one, which is maybe the most compelling of all, what did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? So it's like that. There's a there was a chain that was anchoring down the world, and now that it's cut, it's simply moving away, plunging out into the darkness, getting darker and darker, colder and colder, um, farther and farther away uh, from the light and the thing that's sure. Um, so so that he sees, so that Nietzsche is there, and he sees the beginning of this act. You know, the moment the chain is cut, and even though it'll be maybe another generation before we realize that that's the way that we're. We're plummeting along. It's powerful writing, but it's also hebristic writing. So the power comes um, in part from his integrated view of things. You can almost hear some of the changing theories of astronomy in there, just as you can hear changing ideas about um, navigation and so forth. But do you know what I think is actually driving the, the sheer freight of the form of those questions, it's got to be the biblical text. So mm. he can't quite get that stuff from Job and the Psalms um, out of his heart. So those are there. But the use to which he puts them is, uh, as I say, quite hebristic. I mean, really. Um, it, it just goes a, a bit too far. We, we can. I can hardly help from bristling at this one. Do we not feel the breath of empty space? I mean, that is really something. Right. Uh, now, it, then at the end um, of this paragraph, it, when, it's, when it, it brings out the question of blood, and you, you mentioned the Macbeth, you know, that kind of night walk, out, out, damn spot. Where, yeah. where is there water for us to clean ourselves? And then this, what festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? And I think this is one of the things that as I um, look at the world and think about it is I think very um, telling is that there's always going to be an atonement. There's always going to be a gospel. Not, there's not, not only does every person have a god, uh, uh, either the true god or some form of false god, but every person has a gospel, either the true gospel, the, the blood of Christ, or a false gospel, self-justification, self-atonement, self-reconciliation, self-whatever. And it seems like Nietzsche is recognizing that, that when you get rid of God, you have to replace not only... God, but you also have to replace his works. Well, sure. So um, we are homo justificants, huh? Yes, so, that's yeah, right. Right. So we're, we're always seeking justification if we don't have it by grace alone and scripture alone from God. We're going to have to make up our own justifications because we can't live unjustified. Um, so Nietzsche is an honest thinker, but um, his in his honesty kind of picks up a head of steam and heads off in a in a bullheaded fashion in absolutely the wrong direction when he endorses this. So we've got a whiff of that uh, postmodern stubbornness that we were talking about before we launched into the madman.
Yeah, I think the change is in these last two questions. That that shift happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, "Is not the greatness of the deed too great for us?" And then, must we not become gods simply to seem worthy of it? And I would expect in that place, I would just I think reading it, that the it would not have been the word worthy, but rather the word guilty. That that this crime of expunging, murdering God would be the greatest of all crimes, but Nietzsche is now going to present it as um, a, a great accomplishment, a, a deed too great, a deed that we now must become like God to be worthy of this deed. Well, elsewhere he he actually does say that. You want to get the God of the Bible out of the way and stop using him as a crutch so that we enter into our divinity. Yeah, there you go. Well, well, I think we're headed that direction. So we have two little paragraphs to end this picture. Um, first this, uh, Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and broke it and went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time has not yet come. Another biblical reference there. Uh, this is the words of Jesus often. My, uh, my hour is not yet here. Uh, and uh, Nietzsche picks up that in this last one. So he gives up his, um, his preaching, I suppose. What do you make of this little sentence? Nietzsche says in other spots that he is uh, an untimely writer or philosopher, so he uh, seems to anticipate that things are going to be more accepting in the future and also better in the future. And this is an indication of philosophical optimism that I've warned about in some of the earlier metaphors we looked at in terms of philosophy, especially in the middle of a diagnosis that shows all of Western culture has cut itself off from the God of the Bible. There is no warrant for optimism. It's just a, a leap in the chasm, and that does not sound too bright to me. <laughs> here, here the metaphor ends with this couple sentences. It has been related further that on that same day, the madman entered diverse churches and there sang his requiem aeternum deo. Let out and called to account, he is said to have replied each time, What are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? So um, so the madman goes into each church and sings the dirge, uh, uh, what, Ode to the Eternal God or Requiem, uh, a, a funeral sermon, funeral uh, hymn to the Eternal God and calls the churches the sepulchers of God. Uh, what of that? The biblical text is too strong for Nietzsche here. Nietzsche is a very, very powerful writer. I've, I've called him in writing the Pied Piper of modern philosophy. His his writing does not seem to most of us to be very strong in argument, but it has very strong persuasive qualities. I think a lot of that comes from the way he's um, not only imbibed the rhythms and the vocabulary of the Greek tragedians and so forth. He was an expert in that, but the way he has uh, soaked up the biblical vocabulary and understanding. So you'll notice that it's the funeral dirge for the eternal God. Uh, he really should have found a, a different synonym for aeternum, unless you're, that's some heavy irony in, the, in there. Um, and also there's a little bit of um, 
irony in contemporary 20th century history, right? Because uh, this is exactly what has happened to the churches in the former Soviet Union, that they've been relabeled as museums. So, um, right, not uh, not anything but tombs and sepulchers of God, not places of worship. I suppose we could say irony upon ironies uh, for those of us who've had the privilege to do some traveling or spending time in the UK and in Europe. Um, there are an awful lot of amazing churches with huge histories of preaching and Lord's Supper that are fundamentally empty, even on Easter Sunday. Uh, so to get, I, I want to make sure that I, um, I'm kind of getting the full picture of this. So Nietzsche's madman. I mean, in some ways, he is the the madman here, who's crying out to the Western world that God is dead. Um, and uh, and and by that, he doesn't. He he's not trying to make a theological statement, but he's making a cultural critique uh, that in the life of the world that we're living. Um, the, the God who both has attributes and also personality uh, n- is no longer of I- any effect. He's only he's remembered like we would remember a person who's died and been buried, uh, but there's no living voice. There's no conversation. Uh, what he thinks uh, only matters insofar as we think about uh, it, we think about it in memory, but not in current activity. Uh, and so he's he's proclaiming the um, the the removal of God from the philosophical conversation. Am I am I picking up what he's putting down here? Well, the cultural conversation. It depends on how um, important or how much of a bellwether our listeners may think that philosophy is. Um, I'd be inclined to say with Francis Schaeffer that you can actually see the cultural commitments show up in the philosophers a bit before they tend to show up uh, more widely in culture and pop culture. Um, so what what Nietzsche is uh, is doing is indeed diagnosing that, but it's also the case that he is, um, what, honest enough not to, to try this business to um, deny the reality of God. So somehow... Somehow, I think it's really important to maintain his vocabulary and not treat his vocabulary as something to be paraphrased. He says, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. And then, as listeners, we actually get to pause right there and say, really? Hmm. Right? Hmm. Hmm. Now, uh this remaining dead is would I suppose be an allusion to the resurrection to Jesus in the tomb, because um, the church can say God is dead, but that we we say uh, God is dead, God is living, uh, and and Luther or Luther for heaven's sakes, uh, Nietzsche wants to cut us off there. God is dead; he's still dead; he well, remains dead. I think that that has some fine preaching possibilities to use to use Nietzsche, you know, in in the face of the actual physical resurrection of Christ on Easter. But in context here, I I would like to maintain the point that he's doing the cultural thing. So he's not preaching a sermon here. He's analyzing what's happened to culture. And then, now, the, the, the question that comes immediately after that is this, how shall we, the murderers of all murderers, the murderers par excellence, the greatest murderers, how shall we, Nietzsche asks, comfort ourselves 
Now, this is the Lutheran question. How do we find comfort in the face of our sin? But uh, but now Nietzsche's going to say God can't offer us any comfort. So the, so the question is, well, how are we going to comfort now ourselves? And uh, would it be fair to say that postmodern culture is we're just seeing the different attempts at answering that question if god is gone where are we going to find comfort well that's right i i think what i'd like to do brian though is say that the cultural diagnosis in an important way is neither here nor there so i heard someone a while ago um you often hear this phrase that we live in a post-christian culture and this historian, I'm sorry I forgot his name so I can't give proper credit, said, no, we don't live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a post-Constantinian culture, um, you know, where Christianity doesn't have sway. Christianity isn't the default faith. Christianity doesn't um, provide the privileged vocabulary or something. But I don't think that's um, biblical enough or, or radical enough. It never was the point that the concern of Christ was with culture. Mm. The concern of Christ <laughs> is with the, the individual, immortal, fallen, redeemed, created human being. We can tell that from the fact that the means of grace are not suitable for cultural mass means of gracing, but that they are, are meant for the individual to take and eat, to hear to be baptized. Hmm. That's fantastic. Now, um, so, so, so the question, you know, what is, what does Christ have to do with culture is a, well, who ca- Jesus says, well, who cares? I, I, I want to, I, I care about the sinner. Right. Uh, I didn't come for, I, Christ didn't die for culture. He, nope. Christ died for sinners. Nope. Nope. Now, Nietzsche, though, is going to have an answer, right? Um, and this is his, he's not only going to have the diagnosis here in the mag, in the madman uh, metaphor, but he's going to have a prescription which is the Superman, uh, the Uber Ubermensch, um, and so to g- give us an introduction to this idea uh, for for Nietzsche. I like how this little picture of the Ubermensch here on your handout has a huge Nietzsche slash Matthew Harrison mustache on his face. Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Nietzsche mustache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I think they're similar. <laughs> well. I, I will, coincidence. I'm going to steer clear of this other than to say uh, Nietzsche ad, uh, adapted that mustache or adopted that mustache because it seems to have been associated with the uh, military heroics of his day. So nothing else. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so the Ebermensch mit Umlaut is um, a characteristic term from Nietzsche. And here's what here's what he's up to. So we heard and we're just talking at some length about his diagnosis of Western culture as being without the God of the Bible. And as as you started to ask, uh, then without God to provide comfort, what are you going to do? Now, the first thing that I think we have to uh, take note of is there is no other comfort. And if, if we can push this a little bit more, there is no other place where meaning to our lives is actually to be found. So in the 20th century, this was um, attached to the notion of nihilism, which never did mean that nothing really existed. It meant that there was no inherent meaning to anything. And that 
um, following Nietzsche, what actually happened then was with the death of God, Western culture as such lost meaning for human lives. Um, however, living a meaningless life is not doable for human beings. So Nietzsche wants to charge in with his prescription, but I, I think it may be a good spot to point out that actually Scripture already told us, and as Nietzsche either knew or should have known, that all of life is vanity and meaningless, right? So Ecclesiastes 1 and that light motif throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity of vanities or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And that um, realization is brought to light and exhibited in every one of Solomon's projects through the first 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes until we come to chapter 12, where he actually reminds us that meaning is to be found only in the words of the one shepherd. Uh, that surely would be a reference to Psalm 23. And that we need to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What Nietzsche fatally refuses to do, though, is to consider scripture. So he knows that the human being can't live without meaning. He knows that God is dead, and instead of urging a return to God or a more serious consideration of Scripture, he provides the prescription of the Ebermensch. Behold, I teach you the overman. The overman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say, the overman shall be the meaning of the earth. This is, uh, this is Nietzsche from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Wandering around on the hills. So here, here he's saying, now, interesting that he says this is the meaning of the earth because there's no more heaven, right? There's nothing, out, there's nothing beyond this cre- creation. This is a, um, it seems like the, this is a uh, completely materialistic um, system that Nietzsche's put us in. So we're going to have to f- scrape together meaning with the stuff that we have on hand. That may be a little bit of a, a- Push. I'm not sure that Nietzsche can be classified as a materialist, but I'm pretty confident that he's not uh, engaged in that right here. So in the 20th century, in fact, um, this is a philosopher in a much happier metaphor that's coming up for us next. Ludwig Wittgenstein said, a depressed man lives in a depressed world. And I, I would say that Nietzsche is saying, okay, so all meaning is gone since the God of the Bible has been deleted for culture. Now we need to find someone to invent and give us meaning because otherwise we won't get out of bed. And, and what, uh, what is happening is I think you can see the, what the posture of these people in this meaningless um, modern Western society, they're just kind of looking down at the ground. So you want to think earth, dirt, uh, down at your feet. And the Ebermensch is tasked with bringing meaning and teaching it to us so that we can go around uh, leading fairly meaningful human lives again. You say the first problem with this prescription of the Ubermensch uh, is the 20th century. What do you mean by that? <laughs> this well, is great. Well, yeah. So I, I was taking a bit of a cue from uh, John Warwick Montgomery, you may remember from years ago that he had said, if you look at the last three centuries, he was doing this in the 20th century. 
So he said, if you think about the 18th century, that was the death of the Bible century. Um, you could think there about what Thomas Jefferson did to the Bible. And then in the 19th century, that was the death of God century. I would take it Montgomery's referring to, actually to Nietzsche's madman that we're talking about today. And then the 20th century, Montgomery says, was the death of humanity century. So in the 20th century, I would just notice that that we were awash with Ebermenschen, right? Um, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and Joseph Stalin, and we don't really have enough time left in the podcast to list everybody. So the first problem with Nietzsche's prescription of the Ebermensch was that all we had were Ebermenschen um, in the 20th century, and it was the death of millions upon millions of human beings. Hmm. What's left to die this century? I... I think we have to pray that God will come soon because um, I, I I can't actually imagine, and if I could, I wouldn't want to say out loud what what the uh, slogan for the 21st century would be. Hmm. Where do we see this um, Nietzsche, both his um, diagnosis and his prescription? You, I mean, you mentioned these these uh, Ubermen who become t- tyrants, dictators, and uh, and murderers. Um, can you point us to ways that we might hear echoes of Nietzsche even in everyday conversation or um, in, in pop culture or uh, things like this? Well, I think so. Um, first, it is interesting that we can talk about these political tyrants who would fit the bill for being Ebermenschen. Um, actually, Nietzsche first identified a major artist in his day as a transhuman or a superman who could give meaning um, to a society bereft of the God of the Bible. And that person was Richard Wagner. Um, so artists could be Ebermenschen also. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that I think also that philosophers could be. So um, maybe that's a little bit overdone depending I would say, quite plainly, on the influence and the substitute meanings for the God of the Bible that philosophers might provide. So I mentioned that Nietzsche is the poster professor for, or poster child perhaps for, um, oh, sorry, patron saint for contemporary uh, corrosive postmodern thinkers. Jacques Derrida would be my example for this. Before his death in 2004, uh, Jacques Derrida, who uh, was strongly opposed to anything biblical, anything having to do with the God of the Bible in Western culture, took issue with the institution of marriage and urged, actually, in his last interview, that the biblical institution of marriage should be replaced with a contractual civil union. And here's a quote from him. A contractual civil union, one that has been improved, refined, and would remain flexible and adaptable, to partners whose sex and number would not be prescribed. Um, so I think that uh, Derrida is rather helpful in what led up to that. He identified marriage as we know it between a man and a woman to be husband and wife for life until death do they part as being a heritage from the Bible. But then he went on to say, and that means we have to get it out of civil, secular society around the world today. And then he prescribes this nonsense that I just quoted for you. So um, what I'd say was, this is what you get. 
this is what you get if you don't make a return to the God that Nietzsche noticed Western culture was stabbing to death, right, so to speak. So Derrida was committed to postmodernism, and you'll notice that he provides in this contract of marriage for whatever reason, for whatever number of people and so forth, uh, a dreadfully poor, anemic, and pitiful notion of marriage as a replacement for what the Bible teaches. In uh, the 20th century, in the midst of that Nazi horror, uh, Bonhoeffer identified marriage as the divine mandate of marriage that society needed, but that found a home only in the church's teaching. Mm. Now, what what uh, Derrida does then, after, mind you, after Nietzsche and after Bonhoeffer and pretty much after the 20th century, uh, when Derrida does this, he's d- d- dismissing the traditional concept of marriage, that is the Western culture conte- uh, concept, for no reason other than it's from the Bible. And then what he gives us in return is, well, I, I think it's time to start being polite. It's nothing but his own dogmatic and adolescent replacement. It seems like I, I was talking to my uh, daughter, Hannah, who's in high school, and she was doing um, all Western Civ class, and they were talking about feudalism in the Middle Ages. And the definition of feudalism and of the description of life in the Middle Ages was almost purely in political and economic terms. Uh, there was nothing about the estate of the family, a marriage and family. There was nothing about the estate of the church, which was almost definitional for the Middle Ages. And it occurred to me that one of the marks of the age that we're living in, this postmodern age, is that almost everything is now understood in terms of power and not of order or estates, uh, but rather of, of, of strength, so that even something like marriage has to be done away with here and replaced with uh, almost economic terms, this economic contractual arrangement, rather than understanding it as something important and created by God, um, so that we're living in the days where the thing that matters on the news and anywhere else are are only the political conversations and, and really nothing else. The political conversations scrubbed of anything biblical having to do with God or scrubbed of anything having to do with a time previously in culture when at a bare minimum we would take um, the words of the Bible and the proclamation of the gospel as at least a viable source for wisdom as to how to live our lives. Um, that that um, notion that you, or the um, experience you mentioned from your daughter in school was, of course, an, an answer to that fine question you asked before, where do we see evidence of this? And your analysis of it when you talked about power, well, that's Nietzsche's phrase too, isn't it? Will to power. If you take uh, the God of the Bible out of Western culture, you don't only lose the biblical content, including uh, this winsome characterization of marriage as a lifelong union between one husband and one wife, which is contiguous with God's love for us till death us do part in which children are raised by a father and mother for their whole lifetime and replace that with Derrida's nonsense. It's it's will to power, and it's not not convincing, and it's not salutary, and it has no meaning to it. I want to circle back around maybe real quick and pick up any crumbs that I might have left behind. Anything else uh, as we uh, wrap up the conversation about Nietzsche and his madman? Well, how about if we consider that this 
um, one-two move of diagnosing culture and then making a prescription for culture could be recast as the way other people are teaching us and our children to think. So to scrub God out of culture is one thing. Uh, if you understand me, it's not the end of the world. The real problem is if we, in a kind of uh, trickle-down influence of Western atheism or rejection of the God of the Bible, if we adapt the notions that the God of the Bible shouldn't be considered, that the biblical antecedents for marriage and for human rights ought not to be considered, um, the price to be paid for that is pretty significant culturally, but it could be eternally significant for individual human beings. And also, it's at the level of the human being, the our individual human experience, that we see that this uh, nihilism and meaningless, which is being taught by the corrosive post postmodern agenda, is unsatisfying and corrosive of our very humanity. And that ought to be part of what keeps us, as Paul says, always searching for God so that perhaps we might find him. It should also be a reminder to us as preachers of the gospel and as people in Christ's church uh, that the culture is not our target. It is these people moping about around us, thinking that life has no meaning or purpose or beauty or truth or goodness to it um, because that's what they've heard. And what they haven't heard is the truth of Christ. Thank you, Dr. Schulz. Uh, this has been uh, our conversation on the 8th of 10 Master Metaphors of the Western World, Nietzsche's Madman, Who Preached God is Dead. Now, that's not truth. But the truth is that God was dead, and he was dead not because we killed him, but because he willingly went to the cross to suffer and die for us, to save us so that he would call us his, his brothers and sisters and call us his friends, that he would be our Savior. And he did not remain dead, but on the third day rose again for our life and salvation to grant us peace with God. We rejoice in that truth, and we love that truth. Uh, thank you, Dr. Schulz, for the conversation. Thank you, Pastor.